I started my career um, in the water world working for the Colorado Outward Bound School. I've been working there since 2005 and I've been working in the outdoor education industry uh, since 2002. And I've spent a lot of time out on these rivers and it's what ultimately led me to studying the Colorado uh, for my PhD and, and using that in my life after uh, grad school, which it turns out that's a, there is a life after grad school. Um, I just finished in May of 2018, so I'm still getting used to the freedom of not being working on my PhD. Um, but as, as uh, my introducer said, I um, started my own historical consulting firm. I do a kind of uh, range of things from writing, my own writing and research. I do some work for um, different projects, the Boulder County Fair and others. And then um, I also do a little bit of teaching at Metro State University in Denver. Um, but the Colorado River is where uh, both my research and my heart lies, and that grew out of my experience at the Colorado Around School. Worked out of the Moab base for a long time. And um, when I was there, I started getting really interested in this one talk that, that we give, or a lesson that we teach on the river, called the, we call it the Western Waters Talk. And um, I really liked listening to it and seeing my friends teach it. And somehow from that, I uh, started giving it myself and then I became the de facto Western water talk giver. Um, I somehow became the expert uh, and I don't really know how that happened, but I would be the person that people came to to ask questions about the river or to say, hey, you're on this course, can you go and teach this lesson? And that's what's happening in this picture here. Uh, folks digging around in the dirt and building the Colorado River Basin out of sticks and rocks and rafting gear uh, and all sorts of stuff. Um, but then I realized after I had been in Outward Bound for a while that I had been telling the, um, teaching this lesson uh, the way that I had seen it taught and I hadn't really done much to change it. Um, and when I started talking to people about the way that they talked about rivers, I started reading more books. I realized that we all kind of told the same story about the river and we all kind of did it unquestioningly. We didn't really examine the narratives that we were telling or why we were telling them in that particular way. Uh, and so I went back, I was a, a history major when I was an undergraduate um, up in Oregon, and so I knew that I had that kind of background, I had that kind of skill set of inquiry uh, and ways to examine uh, subjects that we think we know and to ask new questions about them. So I went back to school uh, in 2010, um, PhDs take a long time, don't, don't do it, um, and uh, I decided I wanted to study the Colorado River Basin and the history of it and to, to question uh, the stories that we tell about it. What are the stories that we tell about the West and its water and why do we tell these stories? And I realized while I was um, both working for Outward Bound and then in school that there are uh, there's some things that I learned before I dove into my own research. And this is, if you're not uh, familiar with it, this is the Colorado River Basin. We're right about here uh, in, on the Roaring Fork River, which is a tributary to the Colorado. Uh, and we'll be talking about um, uh, the whole Colorado, and then we'll be talking about how it's connected to places around the world. But to give you a little bit of grounding, this is, this is the basin itself. So some things that I learned while I was in school and before I dove into my own research. One is that uh, we tell, we really like telling stories about the Colorado. The basin has been the subject of fascination for people for a really long time, right? Um, there are uh, stories and histories that indigenous people tell about it. There are stories and histories that Anglo settlers, that, uh, that Spanish settlers tell about this river. But for the 20th century in particular, we haven't had a lot of variation in those stories. And I'll talk about what kind of those traditional narratives have been in a minute. We told these same stories for a long time, right? This, this 20th century, we basically told the same stories over and over again with not a lot of variation to them, and particularly the second half of the 20th century. Um, but 
I realized as I started getting into my research and doing my coursework that there's a lot of other stories that we're missing because we're so focused on the ones that we've told for so long. We've missed out on a whole diverse range of perspectives uh, that have been forgotten about. And I'm gonna talk about one of those uh, today in this, in this talk. And I'll come back to this at the end, but I think the value for asking what are the different stories that we can tell is that it brings a more diverse set of perspectives to the table for present day decision making and decision making in the future. And that when you have people, uh, say indigenous people, for example, who we recognize their full history about the, in the Colorado River Basin, it gives them a lot more power at the table today, invites them to the table and gives them a lot more power at the, at the decision making table today. I'll talk a little bit more about that um, at the end. But to talk a little bit about the stories that we do tell, the ones that I frankly am kind of tired of, they're valuable, we need to know them. We need to understand why we tell these stories, but it's also time to add some new perspectives. So how many of you have heard of or read Cadillac Desert? Okay, lots of folks, yeah. If I'm like sitting in a coffee shop doing work and someone's like, hey, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm a water historian. They're like, have you read Cadillac Desert? I'm like, 800 times. <laughs> um, so this is the landmark book on Western water, right? And there's a lot of other books written, but this is the one that most people know about. It was written in 1986, so it's 23 years old this year. So it's been around for a long time. And in a lot of ways, Mark Reisner, who was the author, he was a journalist, um, his ideas are they're new in some ways, and yet he's telling the same kinds of stories, the same kinds of narratives that people have told about the river for a long time. And you can see the persistence of this narrative. Uh, both of these are from, this, this is a novel on the right that came out in 2015. This is an article on the Daily Beast that was published in 2015, right? Uh, that, that would have been, I'm a historian for a reason, 20 years after uh, something like that, um, after Cadillac Desert was published, right? It's still the one book that you should read about water, right? That, that people in the, in the media are still saying that this is the book you need to pay attention to. I'm not saying Reisner didn't say a lot of valuable things, but it's, it's been there for a long time. And if you, how many of you have read The Water, Light, Water Knife? Okay, a couple of votes. It's a post-apocalyptic novel set in the American West in a time when we run out of water. And Cadillac Desert figures heavily into that book as kind of a Bible for how this, this was going to play out, right? And if we look back at, the, at Mark Reisner's cover, right, his subtitle is The American West and Its Disappearing Water. This is one central story that we've told about the Colorado River Basin and about Western water. It's that we are in crisis mode. It is doom and gloom. We are running out of water and that this is apocalyptic. And I'm not saying there aren't real problems in the basin, there aren't real problems in the region, uh, but it's an example of one narrative that has taken over to the exclusion of almost any others. Um, I'm gonna talk about a little bit different facet of it, but if you're interested in some uh, antidote to the doom and gloom, I would suggest reading John Fleck's book, um, Waters for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West, where he points out just how much collaboration happens and cooperation happens and how focusing on that tone and those kinds of stories help move us forward more effectively than the doom and gloom narratives. But Cadillac Desert is important not just for how we talk about water in the West, about water in an arid region, but what we'll focus on tonight is it's important for where it focuses on, right? This is a precipitation map of the United States. Uh, and you'll notice, and as you know, we all, we all live in Colorado, right? Um, this brown area is pretty dry, right? This is about the 100th meridian, which is actually moving eastward with climate change. Uh, but the 100th meridian, or the isohiatal line, which is where uh, rainfall drops below 20 inches a year. And generally below 20 inches a year is when you need to use irrigation to grow crops. You can't just rely on rain to, to water your crops for you. That isohiatal line is moving. The 100th meridian is not moving. That's pretty well said. Uh, so the isohiatal line is moving east. 
but so we focused on the Colorado River Basin uh, within a national framework, right? That this very arid region, this dry region that seems so different to Anglo settlers who were moving from the East Coast that's very wet, that's humid, that's well watered, they're moving westward into this dry area. It seemed like an anomalous region, right? It seemed like something that was different, that was difficult to contend with. Uh, and, and so they had to devise this kind of uh, uniquely American system to, to deal with an arid region in the American West. But what I found um, I, when I was in school, uh, I started asking questions, right, these questions about like what stories are we telling? And then um, in the history world, there's something called the transnational turn, where we start looking at the global connections. This happened about uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, we start looking at the global connections of things that we thought were, that were national in scope. And that got me thinking about, okay, well, wait a second. If we think about the Colorado as a national river, what kind of global connections are we missing? And Mark Reisner here actually helped me out. He uh, kind of inadvertently led me to my central research question. He has two chapters in, um, in Cadillac Desert that are called an American Nile Part One and an American Nile Part Two. And that American Nile that he refers to is the Colorado River, right? It's the, the comparisons seem obvious on the surface, right? They're desert rivers that support huge civilizations. Uh, and there's a longer, deeper history to that that I haven't done much research into, but it's a piece that I'm really interested in writing. Uh, but there's a lot of comparisons between the empire that America could be. That name for the American Nile actually comes out in the late 19th, early 20th century, just as development is starting on the Colorado River Basin. But Reisner never really looks at what it means to call the Colorado the American Nile. And he also wrote this sentence here that the Colorado has a significance that goes beyond mere prominence. It was on this river that the first of the world's truly great dams was built, a dam which gave engineers the confidence to dam the Columbia, the Volga, the Paraná, the Niger, the Nile, the Zambezi, and most of the world's great rivers. And he's talking about Hoover Dam here. We're gonna talk more about Hoover Dam in a minute. But Reisner writes this sentence, and then he doesn't say anything more about these kind of international connections. And that got me thinking, and led me to my central research question of, well, how has the Colorado been connected to and influenced and then inf been influenced by rivers around the world? And I think there's something there. Turns out there was. Enough to write a dissertation on. Uh, and now soon a book. Uh, and it turns out that the, global, the Colorado River does have this long global history and it's influenced the basin uh, since at least the mid-19th century. Earlier, if you talk about Spanish uh, colonial settlement in the region, but my, my work focuses and what we'll talk about tonight focuses on about the mid-19th century up to the present day. Uh, and it does turn out that uh, much of what we think of is, as distinctly Western and distinctly American, right, this encounter with an anomalous or arid region, uh, those responses that we think of as uniquely American were actually formed through global conversations, international networks, international connections that both influenced how the Colorado was developed and influenced uh, development and use of rivers around the world and places like Turkey and um, India and all over the world. We'll talk about some of uh, these, these places. And then to looking at this global history shows us two things. First, that the past is not fixed and immutable, right? We think about the past as something that, that happened already, right? That, uh, that we can't change, we can't alter the past. But by looking at different source bases and looking at new, at any, you can take the, any narrative uh, from a different angle or from a different uh, perspective or looking at different source bases, right? Whether it's um, different marginalized groups or, uh, or different kinds of writings, we can actually see that the, our, our perception of the past changes quite a bit, right? The past is mutable, it is changeable. 
And then second, that Western, that looking at this global history uh, challenges traditional narratives and conceptions of what makes his, uh, of who and what make history. And it opens the, the door for a greater range, a more diverse range of perspectives and people to be at the table. So we're gonna move through uh, three examples of how the Colorado has been a global or transnational river. Uh, we're gonna look first at policy and the National Reclamation Act, which was passed in 1902. Uh, second, at infrastructure and Hoover Dam. And then third, we'll look at recreation and whitewater boaters. Uh, and while we move, we'll move through these more or less chronologically, I wanna note that um, you know, just because we stopped talking about policy in 1902 doesn't mean that international dimensions of policy about the Colorado River Basin and an exchange between the Colorado and rivers around the world doesn't excuse me, mean that it stops in 1902. That kind of exchange continues. Uh, same with building dams or, or with recreation. Recreation starts a little bit later, which we'll talk about. Uh, but moving through it in this order does let us see how, how people, how Americans and how people around the world, the way that they value rivers and what they value rivers, what we've, the way that we value rivers, how that changes over time. And we'll talk more about that uh, as we move in through these. So first we're gonna talk about uh, policy. And so we think about the National Reclamation Act. Uh, it's a, it's a federal, piece of federal legislation that governs all of Western water development, mostly in the West, right? Um, there isn't a lot of water development. What is there is in the East is run by the Army Corps of Engineers, which is separate. But the National Reclamation Act, we think about it as this national response to the arid region in the West, right? That it's, America had to confront this arid region and had to do something about it through legislation. But it turns out that it actually arose out of this complex global conversation about resource use that was occurring around the world in the late 19th, mid to late 19th century. How many of you are familiar with this guy, John Wesley Powell? Yeah, okay. So you're gonna hear a lot more about him in this coming year, this year, yes, it's 2019 now, uh, because 2019 is the 150th anniversary of his expedition down the Green and the Colorado Rivers, right? He's known uh, for two reasons. First, he's known for being this daring adventurer who undertook this journey down the Green and the Colorado. The first known person, first, first known white person to uh, float the Green and the Colorado, right? Put in at Green River, Wyoming, floated down through the confluence, which is now in Canyonlands National Park of the Green and the Colorado, through the Grand Canyon, and then exited the Grand Canyon uh, and took off the river there. And he was one of the first to map these areas for, for Anglo-Americans, right? To make the West, the West, this part of the West was the great, un, or the, the great unknown or the great American desert when he set out. And he was able to make it uh, visible and to map it for many people on the East Coast. And second, he's known for being sort of a proto-environmentalist, right? He's known for uh, a, a report that he wrote in 1878 called the Report on the Lands of the Arid Region of the West. And in it, it was included this map. Uh, and it, it's a different way of looking at the West, of settling the West. And he cautioned um, that people needed to recognize environmental limits, right? The West is arid and we need to settle it differently and have different expectations from it than say the humid East Coast. Yes, we can irrigate, but we might have a little bit different outcome than we're expecting. Uh, and this map is what he, how he would have liked to see the states divided in the West. And he wanted them to be divided around watersheds. Uh, so that their political boundaries match the physiographic boundaries. And Powell certainly was a radical, revolutionary thinker, and he had a lot of interesting ideas. But we think about his ideas as coming out purely of his experience on the river, uh, on the Colorado River, his expeditions to the West. But it turns out that a lot of his thinking 
uh, I think comes from this guy named George Perkins Marsh. Powell's papers were destroyed after he died, so we don't have a lot. There's um, things in government archives, there's some letters that he sent to other people, but there isn't a collection and archive of Powell's papers in the way that we have papers for a lot of other people. So some of this is a little bit of speculation because we don't know what he had in his collection because it was destroyed after his death. Um, so this guy, George Perkins Marsh, uh, Marsh I think is actually the, the precursor to Powell, and I think it's where Powell got a lot of his ideas that we think of as distinctly American. And George Perkins Marsh was uh, born in Woodstock, Vermont in 1801, and he grew up along the banks of the Quiche River there in Vermont, and from an early age he witnessed what human action, what humans' uh, development on the land did to natural systems. He witnessed farmers moving in and deforesting the landscape, and then the, the flow of the river would change because of that. And it took him a little while to uh, kind of hit his stride in terms of his career. That, that study of the interaction between people and the natural world uh, shaped his life. Uh, ultimately, in his career, it's what he's best known for. But uh, he had some misadventures first. He tried to be a lawyer. That didn't work out great. I'm pretty sure he like funded camels in the desert of the US. At some point, he had a whole lot of different jobs. Uh, but eventually, he really hit his stride and, and, and uh, did the work that he's best known for when uh, in 18, between 1849 and 1854, I have to look up dates. I'm not a great historian because I don't remember dates well, but I have to write them down and look them up. That's why we have Google. Uh, uh, in eight, between 1849 and 1854, he was appointed diplomat to Turkey by President Zachary Taylor. And while he was there, he didn't really like the living conditions that he was in. It was actually kind of cold and gloomy in the winters, and he didn't want to be there. Uh, so he and his wife would go on long expeditions throughout the Middle East and North Africa, uh, and he, he observed how people had lived in an arid land for a really long time and the effects that their actions had on the natural landscape. And then in 1861, uh, he was appointed by Abraham Lincoln right before the Civil War started. He was appointed diplomat to Italy, and he served there until his death in 1886. And when he was in Italy, he traveled all over Europe, and he observed uh, deforestation in Italy and, and around Europe and what that meant for natural systems. Uh, he looked at watercourses and water development. And in 1864, after he'd been in Italy for a few years, he wrote perhaps his most famous work. This is Man and Nature up there on the top left. And we're going to talk about two of his publications. Man and Nature was really well known. It's a little bit known at this time. How many of you have heard of Man and Nature? Okay, quite a few. Yeah, it's, um, folks know about it at this point. It's mostly talked about in terms of his discussion of forestry, which is most of the book. Uh, we're going to talk about two of his publications. One is Man in Nature, and then the second is this essay that he wrote about irrigation. And Marshall's, Marsh's uh, central tenet in, um, in Man in Nature is that his probably most quoted phrase is that man is everywhere a disturbing agent. And he, in this book, uh, he cautioned people to take development slowly, to think about environmental limits. Now, he and neither here in power saying, um, you know, don't settle leave things alone for wilderness, right? That was not, Powell would have used every last drop of the Colorado River. He would be fine seeing it not flow to the ocean, but he recognized, like Marsh, that maybe we needed to have a little bit of hubris in the face of environmental limits. And so that's, that's uh, Man and Nature is a big, thick book, and he at, goes through a, a bunch of subjects, irrigation, forestry, et cetera. 
and in this irrigation essay, he lays out uh, caution in the face of an arid landscape and caution in the face of uh, turning water out of its river courses. Uh, and he actually paves the way, and I, I think his irrigation report was published in 1874, four years before Powell's Arid Lands Report. And he actually lays out many of the same kinds of ideas and the, and the same ideas in many cases that Powell lays out in that famous Arid Lands Report. Uh, and and Powell, uh, George Perkins Marsh, his uh, Man in Nature, this was published in the Commissioner of Agriculture's report for 1874. Uh, Man in Nature was a widely read and kind of popularly published book. And Man in Nature was the second most popular book in the science kind of genre, uh, right behind Darwin's Origin of Species at the time. So Powell would have read Man in Nature. He was also a government bureaucrat. He was running the Bureau of Ethnology. Um, he was running the USGS, right? Uh, he would have been reading the commissioner, and he was a scientist who was keeping up with the latest science. He would have been reading uh, this irrigation report. So it's not to say that Powell wasn't a radical or revolutionary thinker, but when we expand the boundaries of where we're looking, when we look outside of the nation, we can see a whole host of other influences that may have uh, steered him on his path towards how we see him today. Now later in the 19th century, two folks went to India for the express purpose of learning how to uh, turn, to how to develop water. Uh, first was George Davidson, who traveled there in 1875, and the second was Herbert Wilson, who traveled there in 1890. And this is George Davidson's uh, major map of the irrigation districts that he observed while he was in India. And they shared a lot of the same ideas and opinions in some ways as George Perkins Marsh and as John Wesley Powell. They had a distrust of private corporations building uh, infrastructure because they didn't think they could afford to do it. They didn't like the water rights system that was developing in the West. Uh, they agreed that there should be surveying. But they introduced two, uh, two ideas, two new ideas that would make it into the National Reclamation Act and that defined the debate about water in the American West in the late 19th century. The first is federal control of water resources rather than state. And the second is large-scale infrastructure. So they came to these two subjects because they were traveling through British Imperial India. British Imperial India had a lot of centralized power. They had a lot of money. They had a lot of power. They were able to direct planning, to direct construction from a centralized place. And both Wilson and Davidson admired this and really wanted, they knew the West or the United States wouldn't have the same kind of control as an empire would, right, an imperial power. Uh, but they admired the amount of control that the British Imperial government exercised over construction and planning. So they introduced that into the conversation in the late 19th century. And it's ultimately what we get with the National Reclamation Act. And then second, they noticed that the British, because they had this power, because they had this centralized control, they could build large-scale engineering infrastructure. They could build canals, they could build dams, they could build uh, irrigation systems that the US, without having that kind of federal control, wouldn't be able to do. Uh, and they both actually, Davidson first wrote this, uh, and uh, then Wilson, without citing him, it's a big no-no for historians, uh, took it and put it in his report 15 years later. Uh, Davidson wrote that India stood preeminent in its gigantic undertakings for systematically irrigating large districts through engineering means that are, and in one sense must be, unparalleled. And then both Davidson and Wilson said, but the United States must meet this challenge and we must construct works on the same scale. And so we can see 
uh, that from all four of these men, right, uh, Powell and Martian, uh, Davidson and Wilson, uh, more from those last three, right, Powell we all already kind of know about, but that when we expand those boundaries, we can see a whole host of, of uh, conversations and connections and networks that are forming the National Reclamation Act, which we think of as this very American uh, piece of legislation. And these, these kinds of provisions make it into the act. There's government financing of, of these projects. There's government construction. And then after the dam is built, there's continued government federal control of those structures, of those dams and canals, et cetera. Um, and there is a creation of a central agency that would direct water, uh, that would direct water particularly in the West. Uh, it was originally called the Reclamation Service, and then in 1923, uh, the ch they changed its name to the Bureau of Reclamation, which I'm sure you have all heard of. Uh, though Marsh and Powell got their say in there a little bit, states remain con retain control of water rights. Uh, that's why all the, the Western states have slightly different water laws. So for infrastructure, uh, we're going to move on from the legislation to the kind of, of buildings and, and features that infrastructure helped to construct. And we're going to talk about Hoover Dam. Now, the story of Hoover Dam is generally told as one of an American triumph in the face of adversity, right? It's this massive engineering structure uh, that was constructed in the midst of the Great Depression and gave Americans hope and proved that Americans could pull themselves out of hardship and adversity. And it's also seen as a technological, uh, a kind of a trumpeting of American technological superiority and the start of what's been called the American century, where America uh, kind of reigned dominant in terms of, uh, of large-scale infrastructure con construction. And none of that is wrong, right? None of that is incorrect. Uh, but in looking at Hoover Dam and only looking forward and what its effects have been, we've missed its global origins. And like the National Reclamation Act, it arose out of a complex interaction of global forces. And we can actually see them through the story of one man named Arthur Powell Davis. Uh, Davis was John Wesley Powell's nephew, and he ran the Reclamation Service. He was the third director from 1914 to 1923. And he's credited with coming up with Hoover Dam. We'll talk more about that in a minute, how he got to that point. But to give you a little bit of background on what's happening in the basin at this time, uh, first, there, was, uh, there were floods from 1905 to 1907. The Colorado in the, in the um, Imperial Valley in far southeastern California. Uh, and this was just a booming area. They had just uh, plotted towns there. People were settling. They were starting to figure out how to irrigate. And the Colorado between 1907 and, 1905 and 1907 jumped its banks and flooded the Imperial Valley. It's why the Salton Sea is there now near Palm Springs. Uh, and it took out, you can see this, this railroad track, right? It took two years for them to control this. Uh, it was a huge river that seemed untamed. It was unharnessed, and they could not control it. So there was a need to protect against floods like this, as well as to protect against droughts, right? The West is arid, uh, and there needed to be an assured supply of water for people uh, when things got dry. Uh, there also needed to be an assured supply and a way to provide water to all the people who were moving to the West and who were settling there, right? So these two engineering challenges, both controlling the Colorado that seemed unruly and untamable, and then also providing water to people, developing the infrastructure there. And then the National Reclamation Act had set up the mechanisms by which this could happen, right? It provided federal control. Uh, and then in 1903, uh, construction began a year after the National Reclamation Act was signed on the first project that the Bureau of Reclamation built, Reclamation Service at the time, uh, Roosevelt Dam, which was finished in 1911. So the mechanisms were there and the need was there for large scale control of the river. And so we can see this journey to Hoover Dam and its global origins through this guy, Arthur Powell Davis. 
Uh, like I said, he was Powell's nephew, and he actually worked on uh, Powell's irrigation survey, and he worked for the USGS surveying stream flows uh, and, and then the hydrography, that's probably not right, uh, of the American West before he worked for the Reclamation Service. But he's appointed director in 1914. And he had a few other, uh, he had a, a quite a few, quite a, um, um, a range of experiences overseas. But we're going to talk about three in particular that I think influenced his, uh, his, his idea for Hoover Dam. And the first was his work on the Panama Canal and the Gatun Dam. Uh, that's an integral part of the Panama Canal. In 1909, Davis, he was an established engineer who was really well known and respected at this point. He was invited down to, be, to do some safety inspections on the Gatun Dam on the Panama Canal. And first, the Panama Canal was an engineering project on the scale of which the world had never seen up to this point, right? This is a huge undertaking. Uh, and I think that in a lot of ways, uh, the Panama Canal, my advisor from, from my PhD is actually working on a book about the Panama Canal. And we think that the Panama Canal actually started the era of dam building in the United States. And Davis actually thought that too. In his report that he wrote after he inspected Gatun in 1909, he and his colleagues wrote that the US was, quote, entering upon an era of dam construction. Now at this time, the Gatun Dam was the largest dam in the world. It's a mile and a half long, it's a half mile wide at its base. That is huge, right? So this project, the Gatun Dam, uh, and its larger, you know, the parent project that it's a part of, the Panama Canal, this was an engineering marvel, right? This was on a huge scale. And I think it let Davis start to think about uh, irrigation works, about dams, on a scale that Americans hadn't considered before. Gatun Dam was totally safe, by the way. He, he gave it a clean bill of health. Two years later, he was invited to go to Turkestan, uh, was then called Turkestan. Now it's part of Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan. This is the Aral Sea here uh, in Central Asia. And he was invited to consult on a massive irrigation scheme that would have been twice the size of the irrigated area in the Imperial Valley at the time. And he was invited there by a wealthy uh, mining tycoon named John Hayes Hammond, uh, who had been recruited by the Tsar of Russia to come over and to help them figure out an irrigation system for central Russia. Russia wanted to be able to produce its own cotton. They had realized during the American Civil War that they relied heavily on American cotton, and then that supply wasn't available during the Civil War. So they wanted to be able to produce their own cotton. So uh, Powell, or sorry, Davis shows up here in Turkestan. He looks at the Amu Darya here, this river. Uh, and then he doesn't find a lot of irrigation prospects here, so he moves over to the Sir Daria and the Golodnaya Steppe. And this today is a heavily irrigated and developed uh, part of uh, Central Asia, so much so that it's actually dried up the Aral Sea, not unlike drying up the delta uh, of the Colorado River. There's a lot of parallels to draw there. And like I said, uh, these, his, Davis's plan when he left was to irrigate 700,000 acres there. Uh, he was there in 1911. In 1915, the Imperial Valley had 336,000 acres uh, under irrigation. So this was an even bigger scheme uh, than he saw in the basin. And it kind of let him dream big about what he could do there. And then finally, his third uh, overseas uh, venture that I think influenced the, uh, his work on Hoover Dam was to China and the Hawaii River uh, in, in China. Uh, this was a river that was prone, and still is today, prone to massive floods. It's a very different kind of environment than the Colorado River, right? It's much more humid. Uh, it's, it receives a lot more rainfall. But this was a river whose floods devastated villages, just like the floods of 1905 to 1907 had devastated the Imperial Valley. So he was invited by the American Red Cross, uh, who had been given money through the US government to fund development programs there. 
excuse me, and while Davis's plan never came to fruition, uh, he, was, he proposed a whole system of dikes and levees and dams and storage facilities. Uh, eventually, the river was engineered to actually turn into, it used to flow to the Yellow Sea, and it has been engineered to flow into the Yangtze. It's now artificially a tributary of the Yangtze River. But this project let Davis uh, look at how do you control a big river? How do you change the hydrology of a big river and make it do uh, what you want it to do? And so he returned, this is Hoover Dam under construction in the 1930s, I don't know exactly what year this is from. Uh, he returned to uh, the United States. He, he went to China in 1914, right before he became reclamation, uh, served the director of the reclamation service. He jumped into that role right after he was there. And six year, um, eight years later, he wrote the Fall Davis Report in 1922. And the Fall Davis Report is where he put the idea for Hoover Dam out into the world. People had known that there was a dam site down there somewhere southeast of where Vegas is now, uh, but he was the first one to say, we need a really big, we need a large dam at this place. He also proposed an all-American canal, a massive irrigation canal that would deliver water to the Imperial Valley. So we can see through his experiences on these other rivers and in these basins around the world, uh, how he had the inspiration for a project this size, as well as kind of the attendant infrastructure uh, to irrigate land and kind of the hubris to control a river that was prone to flooding and to make it do uh, what people wanted it to do. So we're gonna talk about recreation now and we're jumping ahead in time. We're gonna talk about the 1950s through about the 1980s, 90s in this section. So we're skipping ahead from the 1930s. Uh, but something to pay attention to here is how the way that people value rivers changes. We're going to talk more about people using rivers for recreation and also for wilderness experience, right? Valuing rivers in their free-flowing state rather than valuing, valuing rivers for the way that we can change them. Certainly, we're, we're still using them as recreationists and, and people who enjoy the wilderness, uh, but it's quite different from putting irrigation, on, irrigation water on crops, say, or controlling floods. So for some reason, and I'm not entirely sure why, uh, river runners are often thought of as a fringe culture. <laughs> I think this theme was prom night. Uh, I, I, I don't know why that could be the case, right? But what they're thought about is this kind of counterculture who, and this is not just river runners, right? Climbers and uh, ski patrollers, et cetera, right? Uh, who, you know, live for the next time they can get on the river or go climb or go ski and live in their cars and kind of eschew the mainstream and the mainstream, mainstream eschews them. But as rock climbing historian Joseph Taylor has written, uh, that climbing in his case, and I would say also for boaters, uh, was a pastime long considered escapism that was actually intensely engaged with the broader world. And we'll see this in two ways through whitewater boaters. First, that they're a powerful and historically overlooked force uh, in the Colorado River, River Basin and in the United States in general, uh, in creating an American environmental, a, a uniquely American environmental ethic that values wilderness and free-flowing rivers. Uh, and we'll talk about how they, they um, helped to create that in the Colorado River Basin. And then second, with the popularity of the uh, growing popularity of river running in the 1960s and the 70s, uh, they were able to kind of push the boundaries of the activity and take river running, whitewater rafting overseas. And they did this in two ways. One was the logistical and technical skills necessary to run a river. Right, the, how do you coordinate a multi-day wilderness expedition? How do you, uh, you know, run a, a class five rapid? That kind of knowledge. But when they went overseas with that knowledge, they also brought their ideas about environmentalism, about wilderness and free-flowing rivers and the way that we value rivers to nations around the world. Not always to great uh, consequence, but, uh, but they did export both the, the technical skills as well as the ethics about river running. 
So first we'll start domestically. Uh, and how many of you have heard of the Echo Park Dam, the proposed Echo Park Dam? Okay, yeah, so this was a dam that was proposed at the confluence of the Green, this is the Green River flowing here, and the Yampa River. This is, in, uh, this is the boundary between Colorado and Utah, far northwestern Colorado, northeastern Utah, uh, and in a place called Dinosaur National Monument. That's this dashed line around here, and here's the confluence. So Echo Park Dam was proposed at the confluence, just downstream of the confluence of these two rivers, and a little canyon called Whirlpool. Uh, that's just if you've rafted uh, Lador Canyon or the Yampa, you've been through there. This was uh, proposed in the 1940s in what's called the Blue Book or the Colorado River Storage Project. Uh, and um, at the time, uh, people weren't really thinking about river running as a recreational pursuit. But that was soon to change in the 1950s because of this guy, Bus Hatch, and his son, Don. They were a family from, uh, from northeastern Utah, from Vernal. And Bus Hatch and, and his family, but Bus Hatch in particular, was I think the first, if not one, of, he's one of the first, if not the first, commercial guide in the United States. Commercial guide saying, hey, you don't know anything about rafting, hop on my boat, pay me some money, and I'll take you out there, right? He made this a profession. And he got wind of these plans for Echo Park Dam, and he happened to take out uh, some folks who were involved in the Sierra Club on a kayaking trip, and he was telling them about the dam. Uh, and they said, hey, we need, we need to fight this. Now, the story of Echo Park Dam is generally told that Dave Brower, who was running the Sierra Club at the time, heard about this and took it on himself to save Echo Park, right? That this dam couldn't be built because it was in Dinosaur National Monument, which is part of the National Park Service, uh, and therefore it couldn't be built. But the only reason that that campaign got off the ground was because Bus Hatch was running rivers. And he wasn't just a guy who provided the boats and took people down the rivers, although that was really important because he introduced people to whitewater rafting as something that was safe, that was fun, that you could take the whole family on. It wasn't scary. You could go out and do it for your summer vacation. He got people out onto these free-flowing rivers and introduced them to those kinds of values, wilderness values and, and the values of having a, a free-flowing river. Uh, but he also played a major political role uh, in the, the campaign against Echo Park Dam. If you look through his correspondence and Dave Brower's correspondence and the other conservation organizations who were involved, those folks were asking Bus Hatch for advice. He, I, I don't think he even finished high school in Vernal, Utah, right? And here he is being asked by these conservation organizations, hey, what do you think about this? Hey, what do you think we should do in, in this? Uh, and Bus's son, Don, actually wrote to Dave Brower, Brower at one point and said, hey, you know, I, I hope my stuff's useful. I don't know. Let me know if you want me to start, stop writing. And Brower wrote him back and said, we wouldn't be able to do this without you. You were the reason that we're able to fight against Echo Park Dam. So river runners were, and this, and Echo Park, the fight against Echo Park has been seen as the, the start of the modern American environmental movement. And so we can see that river runners were integral uh, in that process. And they became really well known uh, by the end of this. They were written up in newspapers. Uh, the American public probably had heard of the hatches at this point, or at least they had heard of the hatches if they were paying attention to natural resource issues. But they got so popular that they were actually invited to go run the Indus River by a guy named Lowell Thomas, who was a documentary filmmaker. And they went over and they ran the Indus. It was part of this <coughs> film that was universally described as terrible. Uh, and it is, it's really bad. If you want to watch it, it's called The Search for Paradise. Uh, but they wanted, it was a new kind of um, cinematic technology. It's actually a precursor to the IMAX uh, technology. And it was designed to immerse uh, the, the viewer in this experience. So they wanted to have rafting in there. It doesn't fit with the story at all, but um, okay. Uh, so they go to the Indus, and they run the Indus, uh, and, and that, film, that segment of the film is about five or eight minutes long, and it's the most celebrated part of the film uh, in the press when the film comes out. 
they premiered it in Broadway on Broadway in New York City, and they actually gave people life preservers to wear. And they had these are people in like opera dress, and they had buckets of water, and they'd throw the buckets of water on them during the rafting scenes. You look at it; it's like class two stuff that they managed to capture. Uh, but they were rafting class five stuff on the Indus River. Now, Bess and Don ended up really kind of shaken by this experience. They lost a crew member. A boat flipped, and one of their crew members drowned. He was actually one of the actors in main actors in the um, film, and they were kind of spooked by it. But they returned home, and you know, Don and Bess didn't really talk about it that much. But stories got out to the guiding community that they had gone and run the Indus River. So we have these gentlemen here. Uh, who in the 1960s and 1960s uh, were the river guides who were flocking to the Colorado River Basin, uh, and particularly to the Grand Canyon. Uh, during the 1960s, the popularity of river rafting, which was already becoming popular during the Echo Park debate, skyrocketed in the 60s because there were two proposed dams uh, in the Grand Canyon, here at Bridge Canyon and here at Marble Canyon. Uh, and this, uh, this river and exploded in popularity as people uh, fought the dam. They wanted to get down there to either see it to fight it or see it before it was gone. Uh, and so the popularity of rafting, is uh, Grand Canyon rafting is in its heyday at this point. And so this guy here in the center, Richard Bangs, he's a college student on the East Coast. He may have fudged his resume a little bit. There's a green river on the East Coast. There's a snake river on the East Coast. He didn't mention that. But he said, yeah, I've run the green, I've run the snake. So the Hatches hired him. Uh, and sight unseen, he shows up in Page, Arizona. He didn't know how to drive a stick shift, may have had an accident down on the way to the boat ramp. Uh, but he starts working for Hatch, and he starts to hear these stories about the Indus River. Uh, and he thinks, uh, you know, I'm kind of getting bored with running these motor trips on the Grand Canyon. Like, we're just, we're motoring through, we're getting through really fast, and, you know, I want to try uh, something different. And people in the, in the Grand Canyon were doing that. They were pushing the boundaries, they were rowing dories, these wooden boats. If you've read The Emerald Mile, um, Kevin Federico's wonderful book. Uh, people were starting to push boundaries because they were getting tired of these big motorized trips. And the way that Bangs decided to do that uh, was by picking up on these stories about the Indus and saying, well, I can go raft overseas too. This is Bangs here. Uh, jorts are a real big thing uh, at this time. <laughs> Can't be comfortable when you're wet all day. Um, but he and his friend John Yost decided to go and check out Ethiopia. And Yost, uh, they, they chose Ethiopia because Yost's father was a diplomat stationed there. So they uh, not only had a connection, they could also ship all of their stuff via diplomatic pouch, which is a pouch can be of any size uh, and nobody can open it or look at it and it ships for free. So they're able to ship all their supplies over. So in, <laughs> they got lucky. Uh, in 1973, they went and ran the first ascent of the Awash River and the Omo River, just as exploratory expeditions. Uh, he and Yost wasn't able to go at this time, but he kind of, Bangs kind of, um, uh, gets this whole group together to go do this. He actually beat National Geographic to the first descent of the Omo, and they didn't forgive him for a while for that. Uh, and because of this, he founds uh, what is called Sobek Expedition. Sobek is the uh, crocodile god of the Nile, uh, and he, he wanted, they were the most scared of crocodiles, so he figured, why don't we name it after Sobek, and maybe we'll have safe passage. They actually had to worry more about hippos while they were out there. They would stand up under their boats and lift the boat three feet in the air. Uh, and then in November, this was February of 1973, he ran the Awash and the Omo, and returned in November of 1973 for the first commercially guided trip on the Omo River. And this set Sobek off on uh, its path to success. Throughout the 1970s, they ran rivers around the world. They would often go, say, to New, Ze to New Zealand and bring a bunch of rafts down and run some rivers and scout them out for potential commercial trips in the, in the future. But it was too expensive to ship rafts back, so they would sell them to someone who would then start their own rafting company down there. And so Sobek kind of 
populated the world with these little pods of rafts uh, and whitewater rafting enthusiasts. And at the same time, they were growing as an international company, a company taking people overseas, uh, taking Americans who had maybe been down the Grand Canyon, who now accepted rafting as this kind of safe and accessible thing to do, and taking them overseas to experience whitewater rafting uh, on a different scale. And so back at this time, the idea or the, the industry of adventure tourism is, is growing during the 1970s and particularly in the 1980s. People are saying, well, I'm gonna travel in order to have this adventure. Uh, so we see, th see companies like Sobek or like Mountain Travel, who they eventually merged with in 1991. There's a few, quite a few trekking companies like Mountain Travel who are going to, say, Nepal to go hiking. Uh, but Sobek was the only one doing this with whitewater rafting. So they helped in this growth of the adventure travel industry in the 1970s and the 1980s. But during this time, starting in the early 1980s, they noticed that the rivers that they were rafting were starting to be threatened by dams around the world, just as the rivers of the Colorado River Basin had been. And you know, they weren't around for the Echo Park fight, Bangs and his, his colleagues, and they were, they were kind of there at the tail end of the Grand Canyon fight, but they picked up on that environmental ethic forged in those battles that there was a value both for recreation as well as for wilderness aesthetics in having free-flowing rivers. And Sobek really took on this environmental bent, and we can see here the shift from adventure tourism, which is traveling for the adventure, to ecotourism, eco where there's an environmental mission uh, to that travel. Uh, and they really get into this fight when the Rio Bio Bio in Chile was, uh, was there were six proposed dams, hydropower dams, on the Bio Bio uh, for, by a, um, oh, sorry, um, by a uh, Chilean uh, electricity company called Endesa. And the Bio Bio was everyone's favorite trip uh, of, of the Sobek guys and many of the customers. It was pretty lucrative for them as well, but it had these uh, class five rapids, it had waterfalls flowing in, it had hot springs on the side, it kind of had everything. Uh, but those, those dams were built, you can still float sections of it today, but, but the dams were built down there and they couldn't have done it, they weren't able to stop the, the um, creation of the dams. But they did adopt this environmental ethic that they had learned in the Colorado River Basin. Uh, they published books about the endangered rivers of the world and distributed them. Bangs, um, under the, the kind of banner of Sobek, went out and gave slideshows and talks about these endangered rivers. And you can see that they start marketing their trips as environmental adventures, that by participating in these trips, you are doing good for the planet. So they adopt this kind of environmental ethic and they export it to these places around the world. It doesn't always work out great in places where they try uh, and say, hey, look, a wilderness area that's free of people, that's what this should be when there's people who have been living there, right? Um, but they do take this and export it around the world. And there are a lot of parks and preserves, not just because of Sobek, but because of this growing ethic for protecting uh, rivers and protecting wilderness that do develop around the world. But Banks and all of his other uh, guide friends, they started on the Colorado and they felt like they always came back to the Colorado. It was their touchstone, as he wrote, that every guide, no matter how far his pursuits have, carry, has carry, have carried him, comes back to the river and back to the Colorado. So for all of these folks, whether it's river guides, uh, engineers, policymakers, they're always having the Colorado as their touchstone, even as they're looking at rivers abroad, uh, whether they're importing or exporting influences. So to conclude, what we can see through these examples that how changing our perspective on the Colorado River Basin changes that history, right? It adds new depth to it. It gives us a different perspective from which to see this place that we think we know pretty well, uh, and it shakes up the story. Uh, and 
I think that an important question to ask that you know we got got to through this transnational perspective, but is what happens when we tell different stories? Uh, and I have a lot of questions about this. Um, a couple places in particular that I'd be interested to look at are what happens when we tell uh, the story of the Colorado River Basin through women's perspective, right? Um, I just told a story about a lot of dead white men. Well, Richard Banks is still alive. He's actually a very nice guy. Uh, but what happens when we shift that perspective, right? There was a woman named Mae Schnur uh, who in the 1930s was Elwood Mead's um, acting commissioner of reclamation. She was uh, you know, technically his secretary, but when he was out of the office, she made all of the decisions that the commissioner of the Bureau of Reclamation made. Uh, and we just had Brenda Berman <laughs> appointed as the first official commissioner of the Bureau of Reclamation, I think about six months ago, uh, female commissioner of the Bureau of Reclamation, right? So what happens when we look for those voices? It's not that they're not there. We just haven't really looked for them before, right? And maybe we have a little bit more in the recreation world. There's still a lot of problems with that. Um, but where are they in policy and infrastructure? Because I know that they're there. We're there. Second, what happens when we tell this story from the perspective of indigenous nations? How can that help to empower those folks to take seats at the table and to be uh, seen and honored as fully equal participants in this decision-making process? I don't have great answers for these yet. This book will happen soon. Um, but these are avenues that I'm worth exploring. And so when I'm looking at any subject, I think about this question, right? What happens when we tell different stories? What happens when we look at narratives and stories that we think we know from different angles and from different perspectives. So I'd invite you all to do that, no matter what your line of work, how can you look at it a little bit differently and think about it from a different angle? And that's all for my talk, but I think there's a questions. If folks, I think wait for the microphone to come to you uh, if you have a question so it can get on the, the video. Microphone. Also, um, one thing that I forgot to mention, um, after this talk, if you want to go to Aspen Tap and get a $15 picture, get a stamp on your hand from myself or someone else from ACES, and um, that can happen for you. So, um, yeah, just so everybody knows, um, thanks to Aspen Brewing Company for uh, allowing us to do that. But um, questions, I'll bring the microphone to you, and then you'll say your question in the microphone so it can be recorded. My job's gonna be too easy if you don't ask a question. <laughs> hey, that was awesome, first off. Um, but how do you make this more accessible to a lot of people? Mm -hmm. I mean, running the canyon is an incredible experience that everyone should have. Mm -hmm. But to do it commercially, it costs thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. So like, is there is there a way that, because like, I think that the more people that get on the river, mm -hmm. the more people that, that will then come to presentations like this mm -hmm. and want to be protecting everything. So how do we make this more accessible to a lot yeah. of people? Yeah, I think that the inverse is also true, right? The more people that come to presentations like this might want to get out of the river, totally. right? Um, or say, if you are of the means, fund people who don't have the means to get out on the river, like Grand, through Grand Canyon Youth, for example, right? That takes kids on scholarship down the canyon. Um, so I think this is kind of out of my depth, but I'll hazard uh, an answer to it because I don't work really with um, those kinds of groups, only tangentially. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, 
having these kinds of talks, um, having, you know, I'm, I'm an academic historian, and so I'll answer this from my perspective. I am trained as an academic historian, and most academic historians go for a tenure-track job, which is increasingly difficult to get, um, and then you are so overwhelmed by the burdens of that job that you're often stuck in academia, right? That's why I started my own business, to say, hey, look, there's all this cool research that's being done, and I have a lot of friends who are doing really amazing stuff on recreation. Actually, one of them is doing stuff on, on women who have been uh, in the boating world for much longer than we think about. Um, how do we take that stuff out of the ivory tower, right, and get it to a room like this, right? Like, you might not hear about some of that research if you don't come to a talk like that, or like these talks don't happen. So for my own perspective, it's how do I write a book that doesn't just get published by an academic press that like my five peer-reviewed folks who are paid to read it, <laughs> read it, you know? But like maybe if I have a book that, and this is aspirational, but like is sitting in back of Beyond in Moab, like who's gonna pick that up and start thinking about this, right? How can I get myself into rooms like this where I'm talking to folks and you know, getting them to think, okay, well how, where can I find a way to get on the river? Can it be a day trip through some sort of, um, Sarah's gonna have better answers to this than I would, but you know, how can you, um, how can you connect with folks in your community that might be able to take you on the Roaring Fork for a day? So that's kind of a whining answer to that question. I don't have all the answers because that's not really my, my venue, but that's how I'm trying to do it for myself. It's a maze back there. Yes, uh, your, your, your talk is really uh, fantastic and, uh, and, I, and I can't uh, wait to see some of you, uh, some of your developments with the, the Navajos or the Indian mm -hmm. um, perspective. There's there's so many um, Indian ruins mm -hmm. throughout the whole mm -hmm. Colorado Basin. Mm -hmm. Do we ever do we do we know that that they use the the water for transportation? We know that they uh, climbed down into the into the valleys and then mm -hmm. uh, they did some farming up on on the mesas and they would you know cut steps in to get get high and they'd, mm -hmm. and they'd come down in the river to, to maybe winter there. Mm -hmm. um, do we know that the Indians traveled down the river in any sort of uh, canoes or wooden makeshift rafts or anything like that? I, yeah, th so this is one of these places that I'm excited to do a lot more and this class that I'm teaching in the spring will give me the opportunity to kind of start looking for these, these stories. Um, I also want to be cautious about the stories that I'm telling because they're not mine as a white woman, right? Um, and who, whose stories am I telling and how am I telling those? Um, so there's a lot I don't know yet. I do know that there is an oral tradition. I think it's from the Paiute tribe, but I might have that wrong, that there was, this is like before Powell, long, you know, couple hundred years, that there's an oral tradition that there was um, a young, uh, young, I think it was Paiute man who floated the Colorado um, on some sort of kind of makeshift raft. But, I don't know the details of that, and I think that that's one of those things that we might actually find that they, they were using it for transportation quite often if we look for that, or in other ways that we're not really expecting to find. So stay tuned, that project is coming, <laughs> hopefully. Sorry, the question's kind of partially formed, so hopefully yeah. it comes out right. So the idea of looking back at um, how policy or has been formed by global influences, mm -hmm. looking at that now and being able to tell that story, um, what or any, um, do you see any benefit to looking back at that 
global um, influences on current policy making? Yeah, so I think that um, the, the kind of central myth that I'm trying to break down through this is of American exceptionalism, right? And this is, I think, most easily seen through Hoover Dam. They're like, hey, we built this great thing, rest of the world, you should want this, right? Um, and that actually was a strategy in the Cold War. The Bureau of Reclamation um, traveled the world building dams and helping to create infrastructure through kind of the hearts and minds side of the Cold War. Um, so I think that it starts to break down that idea that like, hey, look, we're really great at this and we have a thing that you guys should want. Um, and that we came up with this by ourselves, right? I think it's, it's a lesson in hubris to say like, we learned this from a lot of different sources, right? And I'm not saying that like British Imperial India with all of its um, oppression and, and problems is like a great example, but uh, to follow or to like cheer for, um, but that by understanding that it's not just Americans coming up with this because we encountered a problem, I think it gives us some hubris moving forward to say like, hey, where, where else can we look for help? And I think this is happening in the water community now in, in some ways. Um, but to continually push people to say, hey, this has happened for a long time, right? That like this has been a part of the, the basin for a long time. Uh, and how do we incorporate different ways of knowing? How do we have some hubris about that? Or hubris is not the right word, humility. Whoa, that is the opposite of what I meant. Humility, thank you. <laughs> so much for coming hopefully we'll see you at Aspen's half or if we don't see you there see you next week um there's a popular perspective on Wednesday as well here so um look out for that and uh thanks again thanks Sarah that was awesome oh, thank you thanks for coming